Great. Thanks, Peter. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for coming today if you're brand new especially. Uh, glad to have you guys. Uh, we're in a series right now in the Gospel of John, as most of you are aware, that we're going to wrap up in the next couple of months. Uh, we're finishing today with kind of a mini-series within this series on taking a deep dive into the crucifixion narratives. So today is week six of six. Uh, last week, Jesus took his last breath, spoke his final words, gave up his last breath, says he gave up his spirit and bowed his head and died. And today we're going to look at uh, what happened to Jesus' body uh, on the cross before it was taken off the cross and buried. Uh, his burial will be next week, and then we'll kind of move into some of the resurrection narratives uh, following that, uh, leading us right up to and through Easter. Um, and so I want to start with this quote. Uh, Augustine in the 4th century said, The Gospel of John is deep enough for an elephant to swim and shallow enough for a child not to drown. Uh, it's a relatively... Um, uh, quoted and referenced thing you may have heard before, uh, sometimes in reference to the whole Bible. It was actually said in, in reference to the Gospel of John specifically, but in terms of like uh, Scripture itself, there is this uh, shallow and deep dimension to it uh, that, that Augustine here is helping us to, uh, to remember. And so I've been starting uh, the, these past few weeks worth of sermons with some, some hopefully helpful interpretational advice for you as you guys read anything in the Bible. But uh, especially here in this segment of the Gospels, just to see that uh, there is a plain sense, an historical sense to these stories. They really happened. They really happened in history. There's an accessibility to them uh, that a child can understand. At the same time, there's a deep end of the pool, and there's layers to it. There's nuance. Uh, so we've been saying uh, recently that it's not uh, just that Jesus died on a cross, but it's the manner by which he died. It's where he died. It's uh, what he was wearing or not wearing uh, on the cross. It's what his final words were, like we looked at last week, etc., 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 that all contribute to the theology. And much of that is layered in symbolism and allegory and lots of nods back to the Old Testament, which will continue today as well. So lots of prophetic fulfillment which further contributes to, to its depth. And the end cap of all of it is that it's for us. Like when we start to read this and really see what the apostles are saying, we're writing these books, like, and John's going to say this today, like this is a, we realize it's a gift, that it's not just history, uh, which we're used to reading his, historical books like that, as though it's completely objective to us and maybe not as relevant, as though it's just kind of information. But uh, what, what the Bible is saying is that it happened, and it happened for us, as though, though it's a gift, which, again, might be the craziest thing of all, that, um, that all of this is wrapped up with a neat bow on it, and it's God saying, this is how much I love you and how important you are to me. Um, so the point to all of that being, uh, Scripture is always deeper than we realize at first glance and worth a dive into the deep end. Uh, that's not to say that the, sh that the shallow end's less important. Uh, it's just to say that there's always more going on uh, past the initial kind of scratching of the surface because it's God's word and not just written by people but written by the most layered, nuanced, wise, intelligent uh, being who's ever lived, who is himself the author of all literary devices. None of them existed until God said, uh, let there be foreshadowing, uh, let there be inclusio, uh, let there be repetition. I mean, all those things, he made them. And so it's important for us to remember that, that, they, that uh, he uh, has the right uh, and uh, to use them. Uh, the invitation for us then uh, is to appreciate and see that God has uh, beauty and depth and goodness uh, uh, in, in never-ending measure. 
All right, so today uh, we're going to look at Pierced for Us from John 19, 31 to 37. Let's read uh, here from verse 31 and following, actually the whole passage to begin. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it uh, has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and, as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. All right, so today uh, we're going to look at this passage from uh, two angles then, basically from the soldier's vantage point. Uh, so again, this is, uh, this is about Jesus' body uh, posthumously on the cross, kind of almost like he's suffering after his death as well, or at least it's about what the soldiers are doing uh, with, with his body. On the one hand, they don't break his legs. We'll start with that. But then it says, but they still did pierce his side and outflowed blood and water. And we'll spend actually most of our time on that here um, in, uh, in just a second. But let's start with uh, the non-breaking of the legs. Um, John here is careful to mention that and to show that it actually was by design that, uh, that this happened. And so what would happen then uh, late in the day, so to speak, with crucifixions is if they wanted to expedite the deaths of those being crucified, they would break their legs because a person being crucified needed to push up with his legs in order to breathe. Otherwise, uh, uh, he would suffocate. So it's part of the torture of the whole thing is that a person to push up with their feet uh, being run through with a nail and to push up on that pressure point in order to get oxygen uh, over and over and over again. In Jesus' case, for a full six hours. So it was a part of the horrificness of this method of, uh, of torture and execution. Um, and so to expedite that, they break the legs, and then immediately um, the, the, the person would suffocate and, and it would be over. Uh, but when they came to Jesus, it, he was already dead. And it was, it was clear to them that was the case. And so they, they didn't even like, just in case, let's break his legs. Like it was crystal clear that, that he was dead. And, and these soldiers were masters at crucifixion. It was like their day job. I mean, it, it was like they were good at it. And so they knew how to kill people and ensure that they were going to die. And so they, to, for, them to, for this to say that they looked at Jesus and knew he was dead, he was dead. He was for sure dead. But then John says uh, that this, is, this happened in reference uh, to the Scripture. And um, he quotes Exodus 12.46. Actually, Numbers 9, I think, has another reference of this. It's a couple of places, but about the same thing. Uh, Exodus 12.46, though, which is a short piece of instruction to the ancient Israelites in Egypt, about how the Passover lamb's bones should not be broken, but their blood, the lamb's blood, should be painted over their front doors as a mark of protection from the coming plague of death and the coming plague of judgment. Uh, again, referring to the Exodus story in the Old Testament, which I know not all of you have read, most of you maybe have, or at least you've heard it referenced in recent weeks because it's come up quite a bit. In fact, if you're keeping score, this is like the fourth or fifth fairly explicit reference so far in John to Jesus being the new Passover lamb. Like that's what's happening here. 
Jesus is the new Passover. In fact, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 explicitly says it. Jesus is our new Passover lamb to the New Testament church. So it says it clearly there. Here it's being shown. Uh, in the same way the Passover lamb's bones were not to be broken, so Jesus' bones uh, were not broken on, on the cross. In fact, it's so repeated that you might be thinking, yeah, John, I, I get it. It's loud and clear. I, I got it like three references ago. Um, but in the Bible, repetition and comprehensiveness uh, underscore importance. And in this case, too, when we're talking about two things from each side of the Bible, like Old and New Testament, they help inform each other and tell us what they mean. Uh, we've said, said a lot about this uh, issue the past few weeks. I'm not going to go back into all of it, but I will say this. Like the lamb's blood in the Old Testament Passover lamb story did something for the ancient Israelites, so do we now know that Jesus' blood in the New Testament Passover lamb story does something. It works for us. It protects us. It serves as a sign that we are marked and sealed and forgiven. So, again, it's so much the case, actually, that if you um, wanted to know what the cross of Christ was all about, um, according to the Bible, we have to know what the Passover lamb story is all about. Not that you have to know every detail. You could argue almost none of us do. But we have to understand that that story is what the apostles are drawing from to get the theology of the cross from. Like, their theology in the New Testament is not out of thin air. It's like they're saying, these things happened before in the story to prepare the way for this one. So those stories help shape meaning in these second stories, which fulfill uh, and uh, explain and serve as the finish line to all of God's former promises and workings in history. Uh, Hebrews 9.22 says, uh, so again, flowing from this idea that the Passover lamb's blood does something, Hebrews 9 in the New Testament says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there's no, there's no forgiveness. Uh, but So that's good news. What, what great news it, it, uh, there is behind this is, it's not our blood. So forgiveness and shedding of blood, inextricably connected, but for clarity, it's not saying your blood needs to be shed in order for, for forgiveness to, to, be, to be wrought and accomplished in the world. It's saying Jesus' blood needs to be shed. It's actually looking back to the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament that were placeholders for a time uh, before Jesus would come to fulfill those things as well of the Old Testament. It's saying even there, you saw kind of in a partial way, God's exoneration and forgiveness would come through the death of, of a lamb or an animal. Jesus now is this final uh, encapsulation uh, of all those former things. Um, but it's not our blood, it's Jesus's. And so the, the gospel here is, uh, for us is, forgiveness is not preconditioned on you suffering or working for God. Your, the forgiveness of your sins is not preconditioned on you shedding your blood for God, on you showing your devotion, on your practice of different types of ascetic, religious whatevers. This is saying, without the shedding of Jesus' blood, without God suffering for you, um, like, a, a forget, like on a human level, we see this all the time. Like if you forgive someone on a human level, you incur a bit of suffering because you forego uh, the, the, um, the place or the right to get vengeance. You, you sort of say, 
Um, I'm letting that go. I'm going to be wronged. And I'm not, I'm not going to demand that that person make up for, for their wrong. And so in the same way, God is saying, when I forgive sinners, I'm incurring on myself. I'm bringing upon myself suffering. And the way that's presented is through Jesus dying on a cross in, in the place of sinners. It's the same thing. And so here, it's on full display on the cross. Forgiveness is in his blood. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. What is God's grace? It's Jesus shedding his blood for you. One way. And grace is also decidedly not you shedding your blood for God. Uh, it's not what it says. Forgiveness of sins is in his blood, not yours. His works, not yours. His nail-pierced hands and the works of those hands, not your calloused hands from trying to be good and trying to change the world and trying to clear your name and trying to keep your own score. In any way whatsoever, uh, the Bible is crystal clear here, uh, God suffered for humanity. And faith in that suffering Faith, putting our trust in the work of Jesus here, is the crux of the matter. What do we do with Jesus? Do we paint his blood over the doors of our heart uh, and our soul? Do we say, I'm trusting this lamb's blood alone to save me? Or are we not? Or we think, actually, I think I'm okay. I think I'm good enough. I don't need it. Uh, only then to, to suffer um, the judgment ourselves. All right? That's the first side of this then. They, they did not break his legs, but, this is the second part, they did pierce his side. So verse 34, instead one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water, and uh, to fulfill the scripture, they, they will look on the one that they have pierced. Okay, so the questions then for the rest of today is, why did this happen? And why blood and water? And why why his side? These are the questions I think that we need to ask as interpreters, readers of God's word, um, especially again off the, off the basis and premise that nothing's here by accident and there is a deeper end of the pool uh, to this issue as well. There's a shallower side and there's a deeper side and we'll kind of venture into both um, uh, each in turn. All right, so multiple layers to it. Let's start though with the plain physical sense uh, and that is uh, maybe the most obvious, or maybe not. Uh, but the plain physical sense here is that uh, he was thrust through with a spear to show that he actually died. Not mostly died, as in the Princess Bride, but actually died. God, because he became a human being, was actually able to experience death. That's the idea. Um, without the incarnation, which is when Jesus, or God's son, became a human being, became Jesus of Nazareth, um, if that didn't happen, there'd be no way for God to experience death. But because he became exactly like you, and exactly like me, people who are sentenced to death, who are mortal, uh, he could actually experience death in the fullest sense of the phrase. Jesus, God's son, died. And the soldiers confirmed it with the non-breaking of the legs and the spear to the side. The reasons this is important are uh, basically twofold. One, death and love go together in the Bible and in experience. This is why uh, wedding vows include the promise till death do us part, and why loving husbands gladly take bullets for their wives. Uh, the, the cross, in a way, epitomizes romance. Jesus is dying for his bride. That's what's happening here. This is not a 
Uh, His arm's not being twisted. This is not an accidental martyrdom. Jesus is dying for his bride and willingly, for the joy set before him, the Bible says, willingly doing so. So it's not sentiment. You know, this is not the fact that Jesus took a final breath on the cross then. Uh, the fact that he did not get halfway through and, and, uh, and come down off the cross, which he could have. Uh, the fact that he get, gave everything is massively important to see. It's part of the gospel for us today. It's part of what God says to, to, to us in this passage is, I gave everything for you. Uh, we have down here on our stairs on the way out, you've probably seen it, this uh, phrase, Jesus paid it all. Uh, it's also true to say Jesus gave it all. Jesus did not just give something to you, but he gave everything. And you may have not have, have ever had someone in your life give you everything. In fact, none of you have. I haven't. Even the best of marriages or friendships or parenting child relationships are, are wrought with imperfection. So none of us have had someone ever give us everything uh, in, in our life. But the good news here is God actually has. He's given you everything, everything. And it's the fact that he gave a final breath on that cross and not just a finite sort of um, uh, bit of suffering that he ended himself before he could give everything. The fact that that didn't happen, but he gave everything in his whole life is uh, the epitome of love and romance, divine romance, and the gospel itself. The second angle here is to say that if he didn't die, there would be no hope for the dead. Uh, it is, uh, I was thinking this week, it's a, it's a, it should be a comforting thought to us that for those of us who face death, which is everyone in the room, uh, that, that God's son already died. It's a kind of unique thing we have on this side of the cross in history. Is a, we, we can say God experienced death before we did. Like he's out in front of us. He experienced it and we haven't yet. Um, and the fact that he did experience it, and then, um, you know, a bit of a teaser here ahead to the resurrection narratives, and then came back from the dead. You know, for, for those of us who believe in Jesus, uh, we, we find that death really isn't that strong after all. Uh, for Christians, we kind of have this uh, movement. We move through this story a little bit differently sometimes. Uh, but we, we have this movement from feeling death is really strong, it's uh, imposing, it's unavoidable, uh, it's my worst nightmare. It's uh, um, to moving to this place of, uh, yes, it's still weighty and I feel the sting of it, but you know what? Through Jesus, it's actually not that big a deal anymore. It's not that strong as I thought it was uh, because someone just like me, a human being just like me, went toe-to-toe with it Some, and, and won. Uh, someone just like you and me arm-wrestled it. Someone just like you and me woke up from it. And so, as Christians then, um, actually in Songs 8, you see this um, kind of poetic thing where it says, love is as strong as death. Uh, we, we get this sense in the Old Testament even, uh, and this is a partial phrase, it's not the fullest sense yet, but the sense that somehow love will come into the world and go toe-to-toe with death and win. That, that's what Songs 8, 6 means. It's partial, it's poetic, it's imperfect, but with Jesus, he's the fulfillment of that verse because God is what? Love, the Bible says. Love is strong as death. Is the same thing as saying God is strong as death and better yet, stronger than because he overcame it. Like Acts 2 says uh, that death could no longer hold him. It, it couldn't, uh, he, he loosened the pangs of death you know, because death only had temporal hold over Jesus for a couple of, a couple of moments really 
until uh, Jesus burst forth from it in victory. And so as Christians, we can laugh at death. We can mock death, uh, knowing that its days are numbered and, and ultimately death has no mastery over us anymore because of everything Jesus did for us. All right, the second plain sense here is to fulfill the prophecy from Zechariah. Zechariah 12.10, to read it in its um, kind of Old Testament, fuller context, the whole verse, uh, says, God speaking, uh, says, And I will pour out on my people a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. So lots of allusions here to Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn uh, son of God. Uh, but also the, the big thing here you may have noticed is that um, Zechariah actually has a different uh, word here. It says they will not look on him. It says they will look on me. So it's kind of more in the first person. It's like talking about himself. He's like saying, I'm the one who will be pierced. This is not uh, some really uh, strong human being or like savior figure. That He's saying, I will come into the world and I I will be pierced. They will look on me, the one they have pierced and mourned. So uh, the prophecy then is that God would experience this particular type of suffering and that Jesus, in a very one-to-one way, uh, fulfills, which is why John is uh, alluding to it and citing it in, um, in John 19. And it says, though, that through the piercing, um, so there's kind of like a, like a lot of times in the Bible, there's this... Um, uh, salvation event or this, this bit of suffering, and then there's an outflow or a benefit that comes from that. And you see that here too. In context with God being pierced, God would pour out upon us not vengeance, not punishment, but a spirit of grace and supplication. Grace, because his death comes as a one-way offer of love and salvation from God, not a list of conditions added to it, but only grace upon grace, and supplication as well, which is a kind of pr- uh, word for prayer and pleas for mercy, which is, I think, interesting because um, of its uh, seemingly out-of-placeness here. It isn't grace enough. Supplication, though, is related. There's a verse uh, early in the Bible in Genesis 4:26 that says, At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And if you're reading Genesis 4, it just seems like this pass. It is kind of a passing Uh, aside. Um, But at that time, it says people started to pray. They started to ask God for help. They started to thank him for things they didn't deserve. And so we've seen this before in the biblical story, but what Zechariah is saying and coming later in the story after Genesis 4 is that a time is coming when God will be pierced and when that happens, that will truly inaugurate an era when people will be defined by prayer, defined by pleas for mercy, defined by asking God to save, rather than self-help techniques bolstering the human spirit or simply working harder. Zechariah 4.6, actually earlier in this, uh, in this prophet's book, uh, he says, God says through Zechariah, not by strength nor by might, but by my spirit. Not by your strength or might or effort or work, but by completely by my hand, I will save, uh, says the Lord. It's not an and, but a but. He doesn't say um, your strength and might and, and also a healthy dose of my spirit. The, the, the but is 
is a contrasting conjunction, right? We, uh, we would say in, in, in the English language. It's contrasting conjunction. They are a difference. There's our strength and might, and then there's the spirits, and they're, they're not to be blended. Uh, and Zechariah is looking ahead then, right? He's saying the, the most fullest way that this verse 2 will come into history is on the cross when I am pierced. And you'll see then, you'll see there, that it's not your religious effort, the works of your hands, but it's by what I do for you that grace is poured out, supplication and salvation for all. Okay, now with those two things said, to jump a little bit more into the deep end of the pool, uh, especially when we consider the questions, why blood and water? Why did that have to happen? If Zechariah is just talking about a piercing, well, why do we have to talk about what bodily fluids come out of his side? Like, why is that important? Or, um, or why his side at all and not another part of his body? Um, or what's happening here symbolically? I think one uh, very helpful question to ask wherever you're at in the Bible, if things are kind of unclear, is where else do we see similar types of things in the Bible? So where else do you see blood and water come together in the Bible? Where else do you see water pour forth from something um, in a salvific kind of way? Those kind of questions, where else do you see sides, uh, harmed sides come up in the Bible? And how does that, those stories, like the Passover lamb story informs this one, how do those former stories inform what's going on here? Because there's a lot more Jesus is fulfilling in this moment than just the Exodus story, or, or, I mean, or just the Passover lamb story. And just Zechariah 12. There's actually, those are the explicit ones, but there's a lot more implicit ones um, as well. So people have said a lot of things about this uh, over the years. I'll give you a few. This is not exhaustive, but I think these are some of the big ones. Uh, some have said uh, that, that blood and water pour forth from the side of Jesus to symbolize the two sacraments, uh, baptism being water and communion being the blood. And I think there's merit to that as both sacraments clearly flow from and point back to the cross. Uh, that's, that's their purpose uh, in the church's uh, sort of life as we do these things together. But, um, but other things I think are more helpful, such as uh, he was pierced to symbolize, blood and water came from him to symbolize the first plague of the Exodus when Moses turned water into blood, which again points to how Jesus is bringing in a new Exodus with his death and how, and how here he's bearing plagues himself. Uh, that precede our escape. So if you don't know that story, it's actually in context with the Passover lamb, but the first plague Moses brings, or God brings through Moses to the Egyptians as he turns water into blood. The first time you see those two things come together, actually chronologically, in, uh, in the Bible. And so what's being, again, further kind of underlined and suggested here is that Jesus is uh, an exodus bringer. Exodus means escape. He is going to bring a way out from sin and death, and from being distanced from God. But the way he's going to do that is by actually bearing the plague that will precede our escape. Uh, it could also mean uh, he was pierced to be the full and final struck rock, or uh, the rock of ages that uh, pours forth water as a fountain, uh, as a nourishing stream, as it did for the Israelites in the, in the Old Testament, in the desert, after they left Egypt. But we find later in the, in the story that the true rock was and is uh, Christ himself, as 1 Corinthians uh, 10.4 uh, says. So again, the idea here is that there's two 
rocks that were struck in the Bible, a physical one in the Old Testament and a body in the New Testament, and they both poured forth water to bring nourishing, thirst-quenching salvation for thirsty sinners like us. Uh, it could also mean, and probably does, that uh, Jesus was pierced and, pour, and uh, poured forth blood and, and water to be reminiscent of Adam, as in Adam and Eve, uh, who in the very beginning uh, was, whose side was opened, uh, opened up by God to create Eve uh, in Genesis 2. Ephraim the Syrian, an early, uh, an early Christian theologian, in commentary on this passage, uh, says, there came forth blood and water, which is his church, and it's built on him, just as in the case of Adam, whose wife was taken from his side. And so the idea is that like Eve was made from a rib and a wound in Adam's side, so does the church come from a wound in Jesus' side. We, as the pure and spotless church then, are not self-made. Uh, if we are the bride of Christ, it came at a cost. Uh, if we are spotless and have the white gown on, uh, if we are purified, um, if, we are, if we have that relationship with Jesus that can be understood in marital union terms, uh, it, it did not come without cost. Uh, it, and Adam helps us to see this, especially when we see in the Bible that Jesus is called a second Adam in Romans 5. Uh, and especially then further, when we understand that John is, uh, it pains to show us that, that Jesus is inaugurating a new creation as well. So having a second Adam with a second creation, all that stuff kind of coalesces and lines up. But the idea here is that there's two Adams in the Bible and they both had harmed sides opened up sides, and wives came from those sides. That's the idea, but at great cost uh, to, to the Adam figure. There's more to say about all of these things, but, but notice how all of them have to do with pain. All of those things I just mentioned uh, have to do with, with pain on one level or another. Uh, whether it's the bearing of plagues or struck rocks or surgery, um, they all have to do with pain. Like, if, you, uh, if we were playing a game of um, uh, compare the pictures, if you've ever done that, like, what's different in these two pictures or what's similar, that kind of thing. Actually, it's mostly what's different, isn't it? So maybe this is a bad metaphor. But uh, if, if you had two pictures and you're trying to kind of circle things that are the same, like, if we had pictures here that represented those stories, we would mark that they all have to do with suffering. But upon deeper inspection, it's not just suffering, it's how all of them give way to something beautiful and provisional. Uh, the, the plagues give way to liberation, the rock gives water, and the surgical incision gives way to marriage. In other words, without Jesus, the plagues would overwhelm us. Without Jesus, we'd die of thirst in the desert. And without Jesus, we would stay separated from God, because without Jesus, there's no Passover lamb, there's no rock, and there's no wedding. And so, verse 35 then is put here um, as a bit of a cap uh, to say, uh, so why'd this all happen? John's pretty clear. He, he, um, there's a lot of reasons, but one is that we might believe. The, the man who saw all this is actually John himself. He's referring to himself. The man who saw all this happen who's writing this right now, has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he's telling the truth and testifies so that you, reader, me as a reader, 
we might read this and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God that all the Old Testament foreshadowed. Every single story is about him. And all those stories in some way or another had something to do with suffering. And so it predicts this event and it shows how central that motif is. And it, and it puts before us this call to believe and trust in him, in the God who suffered in our place. Uh, it's almost like uh, Jesus is bringing together all pain from all of history, from all the Old Testament, whether rocks or um, atoms uh, or uh, lambs. And, and he's saying, all those stories, I'm, I'm taking that upon myself and I'm dying for the sins of the world that faith might come, this era of trust in God, this era of supplication. Same thing. The era of supplication is to say the era of faith or simple trust in God. That is to say, not putting trust in ourselves. That's the era of the New Testament that Jesus inaugurates. Um, Christians should never say, I believe in myself, like ever. Eradicate that from your vocabulary. Uh, it is one of the most unchristian things you could ever say. Uh, we, we don't believe in ourselves. We do not trust in anything ever that comes from us. The, the scriptures scream it from the mountaintops. Scream it. This is the era of supplication, not the era of mountain climbing. This, this is the, the era of God working for us. This is not the era of us uh, living under heavy conditions that could never be kept. Uh, that era is past, and it was meant to pass. And so we believe that we might believe, not in ourselves, but, but believe in him. The last and final thing, so I actually have eight things here today. This is the last thing I'll, I'll, um, I'll say is that, that Jesus was pierced that we might be holy. This comes from the uh, purifying nature of blood and water in, in the Bible and how that informs what's, what's going on here. Both Testaments actually uh, speak to this. In fact, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament says, even in the Old Testament, the law commanded almost everything be cleansed with blood. And it, what it's doing is taking that and looking, looking at that theme in the Old Testament and then drawing a line right to Jesus and saying, the former blood cleansings were just stage setters and placeholders for the final event of, of Christ. Then in chapter 10, this is really important to see. It says, by the will of Christ, by his desire, by Jesus' desire to do his Father's will, which was to die, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. All right, so what, what tense is that verb? What tense is that verb? It's past tense, right? You have been made holy. And, and what's the medium? How? By the blood of Jesus. And what's the status of that? Is it temporal? Once and for all. Once and for all. You have been purified. You are holy. You are spotless. By what Jesus did for you in his obedience to his Father in coming into the world and finishing his mission here and taking his last breath. You guys see how important that is? You're not pure. This is not, the gospel is not you're exonerated for your past sins. Now it's up to you to live a holy life. How are you made holy? So the, the only way to live a holy life is to know that you already are holy. The only way to be holy is to know that God has declared you holy because you've bathed in his son's blood. 
There's no other way to have the right motive to live a good life or to live a, a life full of love and good works, uh, which is a good thing to do. But the only way to have the right motive is to know that you're already holy. If you don't believe that, everything you do is going to be this mad scramble to prove to God your devotion, to prove that you're a Christian, to pay him back. It's impossible for that not to happen. If you don't already know that you have been in the past made perfect and pure and spotless and holy by someone else's work, by the work of someone else's hands. If you feel impure because of what someone's done to you or what you have done or failed to do, there's hope here. Stop trying to, to, to clean out your, your list. Your, um, your, your, I've got to check these boxes to, to reorient my life. Um, remember that, uh, that um, scene from the first Avengers movie where uh, Black Widow said, I have, I have a lot of red in my ledger and I have to clean it out? If you have any MCU fans in the room, for two of you that know that. Uh, maybe there's more of you. There's probably more of you than that. Than that. Um, there's, two, there's two Lord of the Rings fans, but there's a lot more MCU fans. Uh, that's probably, probably the difference there. Um, but where Black Widow says, I have a lot of red in my ledger and I'm trying to erase it. Do you remember that thing? Um, that, that is a distinctly non-Christian way to think. It is a non-Christian way to think and live. Uh, you cannot wipe the red out of your book. Like Loki is right, who was talking to her about that. He's right, actually. There's too much red. You can't. The gospel says, the gospel invites us to stop trying. Look at what God spent to save you. Do you really think you can add to that? Do you really think there's a response to that that will uh, somehow please God? And make him say, oh, I'm so glad that they threw in that 25 cents to chip into the meal. It's like, th- th- he, he did it all. If holiness is, is the goal, if, that, if that's what you're, uh, it's not the only way to say it, but let's just say that, that, that it is. The way to holiness, the way to purity, is the blood and water that came from Jesus' side. Uh, we have to get un- underneath and shower ourselves in in him. In fact, we've seen bodily fluids from Jesus do a lot of other things in this series. Uh, his saliva. Remember how he made saliva with mud and healed someone's eyes with it? Uh, he already did that in this series and um, other things as well. Um, he, he's using his saliva. It was tears uh, elsewhere in John 11. Like he, he, it's like in context with him, him excreting things, people are raised from the dead and they can see again. Like th- that's what those stories are about. They're about this moment. The blood of water is alone what can purify us. Uh, nothing else that we can ever do. And let, let me just read this last thing here. I know uh, this is a bit of a repeat, but just for clarity. The low-hanging fruit here then for us, practically, is the Bible says that you are pure by blood and water, sourced by someone else, by someone else's sufferings, someone who loves you to hell and back, God's one and only son. Believe in him and you'll be forgiven, purified, no matter what you've done or what has been done to you. And the more that we know that in the Bible, holiness comes from someone else's sufferings by blood, not ours, the less we'll look to ourselves for that holiness. That's the author of Hebrews' argument. The more we see in the Bible that purity comes from blood, even in the Old Testament, more than law observance, animals still had to die. 
This is his argument. How much more now in the New Testament, the Testament of grace, does holiness alone come through Jesus versus what we do? Let me pray. Father, thank you for this, uh, this passage and for how it shapes the gospel for us in so many uh, beautiful ways. I pray that uh, you'd leave us here, God, encouraged, relieved, um, happy in you, um, maybe mocking of death, uh, maybe understanding just exactly uh, how much more the Old Testament is um, not about me, not about us than we thought, um, and how much more it's about the Savior who was to come. Uh, where purity comes from and, uh, and how the, the, the piercing of God himself would, would instigate an era of grace, not works, an era of grace, uh, an era of supplication at, at the highest level. Um, we pray this in thanks and, and gratefulness, God, for being so generous to us. In Christ we pray, amen.